Um, we're going to go now to our uh, looking at Psalm 95 together. Psalm 95, it's on your uh, paper there if you need it. I think everyone has a paper, right? Okay. And um, let's start out as we typically do by looking at some of the poetic devices that we have in Psalm 95. So let's start out with verse 1. There's at least one poetic image here in verse 1. Anybody see one there in verse 1? Okay, rock of our salvation. What's that about? Okay, so he's the foundation of it, he's the security of it, all those sorts of ideas. Good. All right, verse 2. Do you see any in verse 2? Yeah. Right, it's almost like Thanksgiving is a, a guest you're bringing before God or an offering you're bringing before God, right? Either a person or an object. And uh, Thanksgiving is not really a tangible thing like that, but it is this poetic image that you're bringing this before God to offer it to Him, okay? Um, we also see the phrase, shout joyfully, which is a reference to what, probably? Singing? Okay, good. So, if we're shouting joyfully, if we're singing loudly, that means that there is a time and a place for that, right? And... Uh, not to be obnoxious, not to be uh, chaotic, but there is a place for loud and exuberant praise to God, I think is what this is pointing to. Um, verse 4. Verse 4. We see a couple of images here. Okay, God's hands, right? So, the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks are both in God's hands. God, does God have hands? No. So this is a picture of God's ruling over them from the lowest point to the highest point. It's all within his reach. Okay? And then in verse 5, we see a similar picket. Uh, I started to say image and picture at the same time. A similar idea. Okay? What do we see in verse 5? Hands form the dry land. Okay? Good. Uh, which means he did what to the dry land? Yeah, he made it, he created it, okay? And then in verse 7, there's a description of God's people. Okay? Yeah, are we actually sheep? No? Sometimes people are sheepish, like when they get asked to pray, right? But um, we're not actually sheep, right? So if we say we are his pasture, we are the sheep of his hand, we, that means that... Um, we are the ones who belong to Him, okay? He watches over us, He cares for us, He leads us, belong to Him, specifically the people of Israel here in this psalm. Verse 8, there's a warning. What, what is the poetic image there? Yeah, so don't harden your hearts, right? And that's not saying don't let them uh, get calcium buildup in them, right? We're not talking about arteries and all that sort of thing. We're talking about what? Yeah, but let's, what does that mean? Stubbornness. Stubbornness. And what is the opposite of faith? 
unbelief. So stubborn unbelief, right? Hardening your heart is persisting in stubborn unbelief. And there's a warning not to do that there. Verse 9, we have this idea of testing or trying God. Can someone actually test God or try God in the way that we can, you know, try someone in a human court? No. But what's it a picture of doing? Think about Jesus' temptations. and Yeah, challenging God. We are questioning God's goodness or God's power or both, right? And so um, here there's a warning against doing that. Uh, verse 10, God describes them as a people who do what? Err in their heart, okay? People who err in their heart. What is that talking about? Okay, yeah, so it starts in the heart, choosing to do what's wrong, then manifested in actions, okay? Um, he describes them as well as those who don't know his ways, which is not, they don't have a map, it's that they've seen what God has done, and they ignore it, and they go their own way anyway, right? And then verse 11, where it says, enter into my rest. What is that referring to? Salvation, okay. What else? Okay, heaven. Anything else that it ties into, possibly? Sander? Okay, peace and rest, okay. Okay, potentially the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, good. So there's all these images that we see here. What are some repeated thoughts that we see in Psalm 95? Okay. So this idea of singing or praising, right? Which verses do we see? Verse 1. Six, right? Okay. We see also the idea of God as the ruler or the creator. Where do we see that? Yeah, verse 3. Keep going. Okay, 5. Notice. Or else, six. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so verses 3 through 7, we see the idea of God as... Uh, what type of psalm? Okay, praise, and specifically, probably, it's grouped with these ones that are described as kingship psalms. The Lord reigns, the Lord is on high, all those sorts of things. We saw that with, I believe, Psalm 93. We saw it with mm, Psalm 92, I believe, as well. Um, we also saw it, although it's been a long time ago, in Psalm 47. Two main truths about God, although there could be more. Sandra? Yeah. Yes. Uh huh. Yes. Okay. See if I can look it up. Huh. 
So that's in Malachi. Okay. Um, that's in Malachi, and it's basically this. If you obey the thing that I told you to do, see if I will keep my promise to you. The difference between that is, for one, God's saying to do it, specifically. For two, he knows the people are not going to do it, which doesn't mean that it's not a genuine offer. It just means he knew that beforehand. And the third thing is, there's a difference between God saying, I will bless you if you do the daily activities I've told you to do, and ask for trying to force God to do a supernatural work as a sign of his power. Because God said, I will bless you if you bring me the tithe, Israel. And that's what's at stake in Malachi 3. What Satan was trying to get Jesus to do was, here's a general statement. He will cause his angels to watch over you. Why don't you jump off the roof of the temple and see if it happens? So it's not, it's, some of it comes down to the basic attitude. The attitude is, if I obey, he'll bless me. That's Malachi 3. The attitude here is, I don't really think give it a shot and see what happens. That's the attitude Satan's trying to get to have. So yeah, it does sound very similar, but it's kind of two different contexts, even though the same wording. Corey? Yeah, and there's probably someone who would argue what Satan is having Jesus try to do or trying to get Jesus to do is to test God's word and see if he'll be faithful to his promises. But it's just a different kind of an attitude and approach, I think, than what we see in the, in the other instance. So, good. Um, <clears throat> truths about God. What's one big truth about God? God is a couple of different words. Powerful, yes, but he's the creator. That's one of the ones I'm looking for. Good. And if he's above all gods, that means he's the what? The king, the ruler, something like that. So big truth about God from this chapter, God is the ruler and the creator. Another big truth is God's response to unbelief. What does God do toward unbelief at the end of the chapter? He judges it or he punishes it, right? Okay. Then we see truths about us as, as people. What are we called to do in verses 1 and 2 and 6? Yeah, but even more specifically. Yeah. Worship, praise, that kind of idea, right? Worship or praise Him, okay? And verses 7 and 11 ought to warn us about what? Yeah, don't harden your heart, right? Don't, don't be stubborn in unbelief because here's the consequences that will come. So we need to see the danger of unbelief. All right, let's, uh, let's work back through here, starting in verse 1. And uh, here's the point that I want us to see here. Fear your Creator God as you praise Him. The as you praise Him part comes first. We see that we're supposed to praise God as the Creator in verses 1 through 5. Um. There's this call to worship in verse 1, and again in verse 2. We're to praise Him with joyful song. Now, um, I was having a conversation with somebody about some of these things the other day, 
we don't need, actually it might have even been earlier today, we don't need a manufacture and emotional response to have a genuine relationship with God. That being said, if our genuine relationship with God never produces any sort of emotional response, we might want to question if it's really genuine. So let me illustrate this for you. Um, I think this is an illustration that Piper uses in one of his books about desiring God or something like that. He says, if a husband comes home to his wife and says, here's these flowers I'm obligated to give you, I hope you like them, she's going to be leaping with joy at his outpouring of love and affection, right? Yeah. The act is there, but the heart is not behind it, right? The same can be true of our worship of God. We can be doing the right thing. I read my Bible today. I prayed. I sang a song at church. I thought about something about God. And we're like, meh. If our attitude is sort of this internal shrug in response to God and who He is, and that's the same response day after day after day, we need to pray to God to stir our hearts because there's something wrong with our relationship with God. It's not a manufactured emotion because that is not sustainable. It is possible to feel a particular way when you hear a favorite song, eat a particular food, or go to a place that you enjoy going. But as soon as that activity or that moment passes, it starts to fade, right? So I'm not talking about just a manufactured sort of thing. I'm talking about something where truth and the reality of what God is doing stirs your heart and produces the response naturally. So it's not coming to church and cry before you ever start seeing anything. Coming to church and just start getting all worked up before you ever even consider something from the Bible. It is as you consider something like, there's a, a line from one of the songs that we sing sometimes, no in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. You think about that, it ought to stir your heart. But don't do it to be seen by other people. Let it happen if it happens because God's genuinely at work in you. And as I was saying a moment ago, there's a place for us to shout joyfully to God. Verse 1 and 2. Sometimes we think that in church we are supposed to be quiet, reserved, that reverence means there is never exceeding a certain level of volume. Now, I'm not talking about the idea of the chaos that some churches have had where people are running around crazy or rolling on the floor or doing all sorts of things out of control. Because Paul makes the point in Corinthians that things should be done decently and in order, and he wasn't talking about the way you do your chores at your house. He was talking about how a church service is supposed to run. So there's that reality. At the same time, there is a call for, as our hearts are stirred, there to be a corresponding increase in, in volume and intensity of what it is that we're doing. And so, to the extent that us being withdrawn or still or whatever else is an overreaction to excesses in somebody else's worship that we've observed, let's try to find a biblical balance not manufacture it, not hype it up, not manipulate one another. But if our hearts are stirred, it should be expressed and visible to the people around us. And ultimately, 
it's before God. And that's the emphasis here. And I think most of the time, the reason that we are worried about singing loudly or something along those lines is because we're worried about what so-and-so next to me is going to think. And this is, what am, I, am I worried about my relationship with God? Now, does my relationship with God expressed in the presence of other people affect those other people? Yes, but the primary consideration here is God and my relationship with Him. There's also this idea of thanksgiving. So there's joy and praise about salvation, and then there's also thanksgiving. So it's not just, God, I praise you, God, I praise you, God, I praise you. Generally, there's also thanksgiving for specific things that God has done on your behalf. Sometimes we find it hard to come up with those things. And for me, at least, a big part of the reason why sometimes I find it hard to come up with things to be thankful about God is if A, I'm not praying, or B, I'm not noting God's answers to prayer, because if I don't pray, I don't have much to be thankful for. I'm tending to complain because I'm not praying. And if I don't note what God has done, then I don't have a whole lot to be thankful for because I forget how much he has actually done. And so if you find it difficult to come in God's presence with exuberant praise, then worry less about what the people around you think and more about what God thinks. If you find it difficult to come before God with thanksgiving, then instead of saying, I'm just going to say some generic thing, work during the week to pray, see answers to prayer, write those answers down, and think about them, and then you have something specific and concrete to praise God about. We also have reasons to praise God, where there's the fact that we're supposed to praise Him, but there are also reasons that we're supposed to praise Him. The first one is in verse 3. He's a great God, a great King above all gods. <coughs> all the things that the people of the earth worship, God is far above any one of them. Um, there is, I think, in Colossians, I think it says, far above every name that is named. And the reality is, God is God. There is no other God. And He is exalted over everything else. We tend to think that God is just a bigger version of things that we see in this life. And the reality is, God is so far beyond what we see in this life and in this universe that it's hard for us to understand how great the gap actually is. It's not just the guy that can lift half a ton is strong and God is a little bit stronger. It's that God doesn't even have to work his muscles, so to speak, to exert strength. He can just speak and things happen. He spoke and the entire world on which millions of people live popped into existence. So it's not, oh, look at this guy. He can lift a really big rock. He's so impressive. God spoke and the entire world and all the intricate systems of it and its relationship to the sun and to the other planets and to every other galaxy in the multitude of galaxies that exist in our universe, God spoke and all that happened. God is God. He's uniquely God and so he deserves our praise. God also rules the world. I talked about this a moment ago. The depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains. What does God control? From the lowest point to the highest point, the entirety of it, God rules over all. So we should praise Him. And the reason that it, He rules over it and the reason that it belongs to Him is because He made it. Verse 5. 
So praise God as Creator with joyful song, with thanksgiving, because He's above all, He rules the world since He made the world. So praise God as the Creator. But it doesn't stop there. There's this idea of worshiping God in fear. We're supposed to fear your Creator God as you praise Him. Worship God in fear. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Note the contrast between verse 1 and 2. Exuberant praise, shout joyfully, <coughs> and a posture of kneeling and contemplation, potentially, in verse 6. Praise God as the Creator God. Worship Him in fear and reverence. How are we to worship Him? Well, we're to worship Him as our God. First of all, as our Creator God, verse 6, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So if we recognize that He is God, there's this moment of joyful shouting, and then there's this moment of quiet reflection. God, you're amazing and wonderful. And God, I am nothing. And both are necessary. There's also the fact of Him being a God who is our God, verse 7. He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. If there is a relationship with God, there is going to be reverent fear. Your relationship with your earthly father may have been a difficult one, or it may have been a really good one. The reality and the thing that I can be confident in saying is that it was not a perfect one. However, with God, when we come before Him, the only proper response is reverent fear because He is God, because He loves us, because He has laid out His purpose for our lives. There is nothing in Him where we have a right to say, like we might have had a right to say to our earthly fathers, hey, you forgot this, you did this wrong, you messed up, you sometimes did something terrible and sinful, right? There is never a case to call God and say you've sinned. And so the only proper response is to come before him in reverent fear, knowing that he loves us, but yet knowing at the same time that he's God and he's great, and we need to come properly before him. And then not only worshiping God as creator, as our God, but worshiping him in true belief. We see this in verses 8 through 11. Not like those with hard hearts. Not like those with hard hearts. Turn back for a minute to Exodus, I believe it's chapter 17. Exodus 17.2, the people quarreled with Moses. Give us water that we may drink. Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? They're saying, hey Moses, do a miracle. Help us out here. But the people thirsted and they grumbled. Have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses said, what shall I do with this? God said, Take some of the elders of Israel, the staff with which you struck the Nile. <coughs> Go to the rock, strike the rock, and water will come out of it. Verse 7, he named the place Massa and Meribah, test and quarrel, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Psalm 95 says, 
Here was the attitude of this generation that came up out of Egypt. I led them through the sea and delivered them from Pharaoh's army. And they said, we don't have any food in the wilderness. I gave them food in the wilderness. And shortly after they said, we don't have any water and we think maybe God's forgotten about us. Is he actually going to help us out or not? Moses, you really are leader. God, you really are God. It's not the request for a need that was the problem because they had a genuine need. It was the fact that they came before God with this attitude of stubborn unbelief saying, God, what are you going to do? you going to help me out or no? Moses, you put us in this mess. What are you going to do about it? Psalm 95 warns against hardening your heart. If their hearts had not been hardened, they would have remembered the amazing things God had just done for them and come in the proper attitude and said, help us, Lord. The attitude that we see often. Verse 9, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. Hey, God, all right, we're going to put you in the witness box and you're going to give an account to us about why you haven't fixed this mess for us. Who is the judge? God. Who is the one who has a right to question God as the judge? Think about Job. Job says to God, God, I haven't done anything wrong. And God doesn't really ever answer Job's question and say, Job, why did all this happen to you? He tells someone about it because it's recorded in this account about Job, but it seems that he never really told Job as far as we know. God says, I'm the creator. You're the one who has made. When you can organize the stars and index them, then you have a right to ask me what I'm up to. You can't do that, Job. You're not the creator. When you're the one who rules over all the nations of the world, come talk to me. But Job, that's not you. Psalm 95 is making the same point. God is not the one who needs to be evaluated as to whether he is what he says he is. We're the ones who fail over and over and over again. And so the people who fail over and over again don't have a right to come to God and say, God, when are you going to do the thing that we think that you should do? God's response is justified in verse 10. God will judge unbelief. Verse 10, for 40 years I loathed them. What did his loathing look like? It looked like bodies getting stacked up in the wilderness until an entire generation of people died out. Now, people argue about how many people there were. Even if it was 20,000, that's a lot of bodies in 40 years. If it was 2 million people that came out of Egypt, as a lot of conservative commentators have thought, that's hundreds of funerals a day for 40 years. They're dropping like flies as a sign of God's loathing of their unbelief. So what's the greatest discouragement from us having that same attitude look at the graveyard in the wilderness it's not God being harsh he gave them opportunity over and over and over again and their consistent response was we want to go back to Egypt we don't like your plan we don't like your leader we don't like the food we don't like the water we don't like the wilderness we don't want to go to the promised land because we're afraid God said, okay, you're not going to. Your children will go in. 
Two people from their generation got in, Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else died, including Moses. It's a sobering reminder of the reality that God will judge unbelief. And a broader application of it in verse 11, they shall not enter into my rest. Unbelief leads to separation from God. The book of Hebrews picks up on this theme and says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You go back to creation. God rested from his work on the seventh day. You go to the concept of the Sabbath as Moses gives the law to the people. They were supposed to rest on the seventh day. It wasn't primarily about not working. It was about resting and enjoying God's presence and God's provision. I'm going to give you two days' worth of manna. You're not going to have to work. You can wait and consider who I am and rest in my care for you. And they made it about how many steps you could take, which is why it says in the book of Acts, that I was just talking to eighth graders about, the Mount of Olives is a Sabbath day journey from Jerusalem. So they took it from commune with your God who made the world and has a relationship with you to don't walk more than 100 steps in a day. The point of it is rest. The point of it is relationship with God. The point of it is if our hearts are filled with how great God is, we will praise Him, we will show Him reverent fear, and we will believe what He has said. And if we're not motivated by God's goodness, then we ought to be motivated by His wrath. And we see both motivations here in Psalm 95. And so the point then, as I said earlier again, of Psalm 95 is fear your Creator God as you praise Him. Praise Him exuberantly, loudly, with joy. Fear Him reverently, respectfully, contemplatively. Beware of the dangers of unbelief and the necessity of worshiping God because He's a great God.